Hello, I'm Tim McLaughlin, and this is a Maywa podcast. The Working Traveler was a workshop held at the Maywa Textile Symposium on October 17th, 2007. The panel consisted of John Gillow, Norjahan Bilgrami, and Charlotte Kwan. Each member of the panel spoke about their personal experience as a working traveler, how they got started, the reason for their journeys, and how travel and the interaction with other cultures has changed their lives. In this, the first of four episodes, John Gillow introduces his life and speaks about his passion for textiles. John is a well-established author who has produced a wide range of titles for the publisher Thames and Hudson. He is currently completing a new title, Textiles of the Islamic World. John is also a collector who has witnessed the changes in the Kutch Desert of India for over 30 years. From that loft in Vancouver, we invite you to join us for The Working Traveller, Part 1. Thanks ever so much to Tim, to Noor Jahan, and especially to Charlotte, who is the kind of hub around which we all spin. <laughs> She's got the energy and the organisational skills um, to make sure that Gillow gets on the plane, and Gillow turns <laughs> up, and his stuff turns up, and his books turn up, and all the rest of the stuff. Um, some of you may have heard me speak before. I got started in textiles when I was about 17, and I hitchhiked to Istanbul. It was the hippie trail. You know, I'd be told about the wonders of Istanbul. Turned up there, wandered around the Grand Bazaar, and I had very little money in my pocket, and there were furs and there were carpets, all kinds of wonderful things that I couldn't afford. And I happened across a pile of Turkish embroideries, which were then about one Canadian dollar each. Bought some presents for grandmother, sister, girlfriend, whatever. I got hooked, and I got hooked on the textiles themselves, the people, the nomads, the peasants who make them, and the whole shebang. At that stage, people were flooding back from India, and they'd set off a year and a half before with 10 English pounds in their pocket, and uh, they'd been away for a year and a half, and they told me these stories, and my little schoolboy eyes kind of went, <laughs> I thought, right, as soon as I finish with the university, that's where I'm going to go. Of course, they borrowed five quid from me and to get their Bulgarian visas, and I never got back, but you, know, you, you live and learn. Um, I then went down to Morocco, back to Turkey, down to Lebanon and Syria, and finally got to India. In the centre of New Delhi, there's Connaught Place, and there is still a woman there selling Merowak embroidery. And I bought some Merowak embroidery from her. I had no idea where it was from. And she said it was from this place called Kutch. So I looked on my map, and you know, if you imagine India, it's like a big triangle with a little triangle on the top. So Kutch is in the, the far left-hand corner, halfway between Bombay and Karachi. Got on the train, arrived as a monsoon, arrived there, sort of sick, dirty, more dead than alive. And there was a, I remember there was a dust storm and all I could see was the walls of the city, which then existed. And in the middle, what looked like a Victorian, in English terms, public school, private school, which turned out to be the Raj's Palace. And I walked down the street, and there were wonderful Muslim men with red-headed dyed beards and big ashrak, block this, this kind of cloth. They used as turbans and as long as sarongs. And I was talking to Ismail Barkatri, the chap in 
uh, blood princess cloth. He said, yes, that's my traditional marker. By this stage, I'd begun to think that I had to make a living. Um, I think I had, I had one child and one on the way and no visible means of support. And I had to do something, and I didn't want to work in the bank. And um, I, was, I was virtually unemployable. I had one or two degrees, and, but no deep dip. At that stage, the British economy had, had almost collapsed. So there really weren't many employment opportunities, and I didn't really didn't want to do, I certainly didn't want to work in the bank. I'd been to an exhibition of Joss Graham, the dealer in the main dealer in oriental textiles in London. I've been to his first exhibition on the textiles of Sindh in 1975 and I'd looked around and I'd gawped at the prices that he was charging. Uh, I still do of course but um, <laughs> I, it, I, I wandered around there and I thought well I know where this stuff comes from and I sort of filed that away as an idea of making a living. When I got to Kutch I met somebody in the main bazaar and they took me I didn't know where I was going and they took me to the outskirts of town and then we ended up walking out by the rubbish dump there were crows and there were vultures and there were all kinds of things and these people were very low caste, very much at the bottom of the scale and they showed me some textiles lots of embroidered torons hanging to go above the doorway square skirts bodices, whatever so I sat down and I started to buy things and I was always I'd, I'd already bought things in places like Turkey and Morocco and I'd begun to find that I wasn't too bad at negotiating a good price you've got to do in terms of business you've got to negotiate a price whereby you can make a profit and keep keep the business going and, and I could do that and uh, I paid my money packed my bags up took it off up to Delhi. I think I posted stuff back home in those days and brought stuff stuff home. Took it back home. I had friends who said, well, put on a show at the local old food shop. So I displayed stuff, marked it, did a little bit of um, information on what the casts were, what their jobs were, what the farming cast did, what the, the rabari, the shepherd's cast did, and how the whole... Um, embroidery tradition worked. It was basically a dowry the girl would put together. Make costume for herself, costume for the bridegroom, decorations for their animals, quilts, etc. And it was like a test look. I'm good with a needle, marry me. It was like a test that she could actually sort of pass. And, and for a few years that's what I did. And I also did a friend of mine encourage me to give a talk. And you know, the first talk was a sort of shambles and you know I did and you know my voice went up and down and you weren't quite sure what you what you were going to say about anything and I gradually became a business and I very much concentrated on Kutch and uh, Saurashtra the other part of Gujarat where there's a lot of um, embroidery I got I was pretty desperate I had two kids to support and a wife to support and I was really wasn't making much money at it at all. And I was down in Bombay and there were, again, Wagri people. These are the itinerants who, who collect the embroidery from the villages and then sell it on 
usually to another Indian dealer, to another Indian dealer who will then send it on to a foreigner. But I tended to short circuit that and go straight to the rubbish dump and find the stuff. And I was talking to some Wagris in Bombay and they mentioned a big wholesaler in Saurashtra. And I took the train there and looked on the map and there were two towns, there were two possibilities where these guys were. And I went to Rajkot, uh, which is quite a big town there, and wandered around the town for a day and found nothing. And then I went to this place, Surindanaga, wandered around, and again, I could find nothing. And I was eventually walking past a cotton factory, and I had a name, I had a name, Ismail Bay. They were, they were Muslims, these wholesalers. And... I mentioned this guy, I just asked a local, said Ismail Bai, and he took me to this house, and I didn't know whether it was the right, you know, Ismail Bai is a very common name for a Muslim, so it could be anyone. Got to the door, the door opened, and the son of the family just sort of, right, yes, you're in the right place. And I went in there, and there were literally about 40,000 pieces of embroidery in there. So I stayed there for three days, and it was good... Indian merchants are very good. The first time you buy anything, it's all really cheap. And they make sure you get a very good deal. So I got a very good deal on the things that I bought, transported it myself up to Delhi and got it back. And after that, I had a good source of textiles and it began to work as a business. The, the role I've played and Joss Graham has played and the other people who went to Kutch reasonably early was to publicise it. I and Joss Graham and other people to an extent did lectures on Kutch and took photographs and to an extent popularised it and said look there is this almost unique place. I was talking to Ismail by Kutchery yesterday morning and he was, he was talking about what Kutch was like 30 years ago. It was it was a place way out on the edge of India. It's culturally, it's actually related to Sindh in Pakistan across the border. The language Kutch is, is like Sindhi, isn't it? They're not, and it was a, in the old days of British rule, it had been a free port, almost like Dubai. It was, it was a very special place. And uh, then probably about a third of the people wore their traditional dress and lived the, their traditional lives. Um, so we acted as sort of publicity agents for the place. And of course we have a little bit of regret because it's not like it was 30 years ago. Um, it's full of foreign tourists and it's become industrialised and other people from the rest of India have come on. It's changed very much. But the effect of this publicity was the textile women of Britain kind of thought, right. That's where we're going to go. And they went on tours. People organised tours. The Embroiderers Guild and, and other organisations and private individuals organised tours. Took them around, went to certain Rabari villages that you go to and that you've got good links with. And they began to buy. And the women would sell, instead of selling their old textiles to the itinerants, who were almost gypsy-like, the, the process was they'd wander around the village and they'd either buy 
old embroidery directly from the, it's usually the, um, the old mother of the family who's selling her dowry from 30 or 40 years ago and then selling it along, along the chain to end up in the hands of people like me who would then try and sell it to you. They would then sell, the, the women would sell direct to these Western women and they'd of course get a far better price from the Western women than they would from um, us. From us, yeah. yeah. Let's, you know, let's be honest about it. You know, we've got to make a living out of it. We've got to make a living out of it. Um, so at that stage, really, Charlotte and Noor Jahan in Pakistan come in, where you've got the, the wonderful old embroidery, because Kachi and Sindhi embroidery done before the Second World War was uh, so fine, you could faint. It was just, you could look at things. I still find things occasionally, now, now in Pakistan much more than in India, that, that make me just drool. And that was never going to, that was never going to continue because the social structure had changed, industrialization had come, even to Sindh, even to Sindh, Sindh has changed. Um, so those, those kind of, the conditions under which people lived to create that wonderful embroidery no longer exist. So you then got to think, well, these people still have the skills. They have the embroidery skills. They have the printing skills. They have the weaving skills. What are you going to do? I've got no organisation. I'm, I'm a pirate by nature. You, know, you turn, in, turn up, buy the stuff, move it, make your profit, earn your living, go back, and then find somewhere else that has got beautiful things to buy. Um, this is not in any way sustainable it's the buzzword so basically over to Charlotte and Noor Jahan who've got the organisational ability to actually and the patience to sit with people and go say with the Ashrak when I first went to Kutch the Ashrak they were making was all chemical colours this is this is a, a cloth made for Muslims and uh, it's not the Hindus have a different kind of blood print that they'll wear uh, so their main market, they loved the, the, the chemically dyed stuff. It was nice and bright and it washed well. And, you know, they could put it out on the line, it didn't fade. And the effect of all of these Western women arriving in Kutch, they said they looked at this stuff and they said, yes, but is it, is it vegetable dyed? And this one about Katri and his father would say, no, it's not, it's chemically dyed. And they said, well, well why don't you do it with vegetable dyes? And they said, so we'll try vegetable dyes. And I remember the time I went to see, out to Damadka, where they were making this cloth. I looked, they were just starting to do vegetable dyes. It was bloody awful. It was really, really awful. They hadn't got the skills. They'd forgotten how to do it. And they were just switching, they, they were switching from chemically dyed stuff to vegetable dyed stuff for, for a Western market. The vegetable dyed stuff was... Only for the Western market, wasn't it? Mm -hmm. Not for the locals. The locals just like nice, bright chemical colours. Why wouldn't you? Um, the Westerners like the more muted vegetable stuff. And at first, the stuff they made was just horrendous. It took them, what, two, three years to get it together? Oh, oh. Probably eight years. <clears throat> and then they got a product that could sell to the West. And if you're selling to the West, particularly if you're selling to a Western market, a Western tourist market, which is arriving by the busload, and there's competition between the women about who gets the best bit first. 
So the price that you can charge to Western tourists is really quite high, so the margin is quite high. So it's actually worth going through all the the process of, of making the stuff. But they still keep the the chemical dyed mm-hmm. stuff still goes up to, up to the the Muslim jarts on the border. They still keep that going. You've been listening to John Gillow, recorded live while speaking in the workshop The Working Traveller. The Working Traveller was presented as part of the Mewa Textile Symposium and was held on October 17, 2007. In part two of The Working Traveller, Norja Hanville Grammy will speak about her inspiration and the ancient craft of traditional Azraq block printing. This episode was first posted in January of 2008. For more information on Maywa podcasts, visit our website at www.maywa.com. I'm Tim McLaughlin. Thank you for listening.